who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, including death, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've prayed already this morning, we ask you that you would do what you alone can do. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can take the comfort, the assurance, the truth, the precious truth of this, your word, and press it deep into our souls. But this is what we need from you, that you would do this. And so come by your spirit. Hear this prayer. Take your word and change us in the deepest places of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's a pretty common thing when you get to the end of some uh, accomplishment to have some sort of celebration, uh, you know, a party. You, you call your friends, you invite the neighbors, you gather family together, and you have a party when you get to the end of uh, some great accomplishment. I, I kind of feel like we're, we ought to do that this morning. I mean, we're getting to the end of some great accomplishment. We should have a party to celebrate that we've uh, come to the end of Romans chapter 8. Um, I trust not because it's over, but I trust because it's been, it sure has for me, and I trust it has been for you, uh, a deeply, deeply encouraging thing. We've been, those of you who are newer to Christ the King, we've been in and out of Romans for the last three years, um, which I guess means we've got at least three more years to go since there are 16 chapters. I, you know, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. But what Paul is doing as he brings just this portion of the letter to a pause, let's let's call it a pause and not a conclusion. What What he's doing in bringing us to this pause is offering this stunning affirmation of our assurance, of our certainty, of our confidence in the love of God the Father and the love of Jesus the Son for his people. Seeking to to say just one more time that there isn't anything in the whole of the creation that will ever separate us from that love. And it's almost as though a great symphonic peace comes to this this incredible crescendo, you know, this incredible, emotional, powerful conclusion. And, and if you want a kind of an interesting illustration of what I think it is that's going on here, um, listen, this is a strange assignment for you, I suppose, but listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony this week. And when you get into the fourth movement, the last movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, note that about three and a half minutes into that last movement, 
this incredible symphonic piece comes to this incredible crescendo, what feels almost like an incredible conclusion. And then after that incredible conclusion, it's like you you come down from the mountain and Beethoven gathers up all of the themes and, and all of the stuff that he's written so far and then very, very slowly and very, very powerfully leads you through the last five minutes of the symphony where at the end of the symphony, you really are at the apex, at the pinnacle, at the peak of Mount Everest. That's what's going on here. It's easy for us to think that when we get to 9, 10, and 11, Paul's changing focus. He's shifting his attention from what he has been talking about to what he's going to be talking about. But as Sinclair Ferguson points out in his comments on this passage, what he's really done in these first eight chapters is take us to base camp. He's taken us to base camp. Because in 9 and 10 and 11, having caught our breath at base camp, we're now going to ascend Everest and go all the way to the top. And we're going to see things that stagger us, that are profound, that puzzle us. Or if you want to think in terms of depth rather than height, think that we're drilling down even more deeply into the mysteries and wonders of the gospel, the mysteries and wonders of God's providence as his salvation unfolds across all of human history and moves in the direction of this great culmination, which is the glorious, victorious return of Christ. And through the glorious return of Christ, the people of God, finally fully transformed, enter into the full enjoyment of what is promised them in the gospel, the new heaven, the new earth, with sandy beaches, no more tears, no more death, blue skies, sunrises, and some kind of food. (laughs) That's where we are in this letter. We're at base camp. And Paul is sort of gathering everything up and causing us, encouraging us just to pause, catch our breath before we go even higher or deeper. That's why I want to encourage you to come tonight so that we can begin to get our bearings with 9, 10, and 11. Just a little bit of an introduction to what's out in front of us. But for right now, let's just do what Paul's been doing. Let's Let's ask some questions here at base camp before we make the ascent. Let me give you some questions. It seems to me Paul is good at asking questions, so let's take our cue from him and let's ask some questions. First, to whom is he speaking in these verses? To whom is he speaking? Second, what is he saying in these verses? To whom is he speaking? What is he saying? And then third, what does he want for us? What is he after here? To whom is he speaking? What is he saying? And what is he after here? To whom is he speaking? I want you to notice what is a very interesting and very important thing in this passage. He does it in these verses, Paul does, he does this 
throughout his letters. He does it many, many places. I want you to notice in these verses the personal pronouns. I don't know who said this. Somebody has said, if I could get my mind around the personal pronouns of the Christian faith, I would understand the beauty, the glory of the Christian faith. I want you to notice the personal pronouns in this passage. And here's what I want you to see. By my count, you can count, see see if I'm right in this. By my count, the apostle uses the third person plural pronoun, us, eight times in 31 through 39. He uses the pronoun we an additional three times. What shall we say? We are being killed. We are regarded. Eleven times he uses pronouns, listen to this, get this, that include himself. That include himself. What shall we say to these things? If Christ has died for us, if God has given Jesus up for us, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who is there to condemn us? Who is there to bring a charge against us? Eleven times personal pronouns that include himself. He does it all the time. Now here is this man, the Apostle Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, whom both secular and church historians regard as the single most influential person in the history of Western civilization after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read Will and Ariel Durant. Read Jacques Barzan. Read F.E.C. Friend. Read both secular historians and church historians. They all agree there's not a whit of difference between them. Those whom you would think would carry a brief for the Apostle Paul and those who don't particularly carry a brief for the Apostle Paul. Here is this person. The single most influential person shaping the Western world, shaping Western history and culture more significant than anyone save Jesus Christ. Educated in Tarsus. In Paul's day, for those of you who are interested in these things, in Paul's day there were three centers of culture and learning. Athens, Alexandria, and Tarsus. And if you read F.F. Bruce's biography, you're getting a lot of assignments here this morning. Just listen to the Beethoven. Just do that. In F.F. Bruce's biography, he argues pretty persuasively that among the three, Tarsus was the most highly regarded of the three at the time of the Apostle Paul. It was the Oxford of his day. It was the Sorbonne of his day. It was the Harvard of his day. It was the University of Michigan of his day. It was the center. If you wanted to go to school someplace, you went to Tarsus. 
And then not only did he study at the, at the most significant secular university or in the most significant secular place, he was trained by the most prominent rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. What am I saying here? He had the resume, folks. He had the resume. And not only did he have the cultural resume or the educational resume, he was a citizen of Rome. He possessed all of the privileges and advantages that a Roman citizen possessed, though a Jew. And not only that, you read Philippians chapter 3, and you can see in Philippians chapter 3 all of the things that he had formerly regarded, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the law, a Pharisee. And how much did he love the law and hate the church? He persecuted the church. He put people to death, all for the sake of his religion. He had the pedigree. He had the resume. He had everything. And what was more important to him than pedigree, education, achievement, what matters most to him is this precious Gospel of Jesus Christ. I boast in nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what does He say here? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you have heard me talk about this passage, but most of you have not. And I just encourage you, to see that Paul repeatedly does this sort of thing. Here's the thing I'm pretty convinced of. There is a lot of preaching out there that understands Paul, but that doesn't listen to Paul. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. You, see here he's addressing the Ephesians. You, reminding them of their condition, reminding them of what they were that they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then it's almost like the Apostle Paul has a light go on in his own brain. And in verse 3 he says this, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. We, us. A lot of you know that one of my pet peeves is this pet peeve regarding what we do to people in ministry, which people in ministry are only too glad to have happen to them. We get elevated. We get stuck behind pulpits. We get robed in black robes. We get, we get stripes on our robes so that we can, we can show off just a bit more how elevated we are. Preachers, ministers of the gospel, a group of professionals who get elevated as superior because they're above it all. Because they have it all together. Because they're more 
righteous, more spiritual. Why does the Apostle Paul say us, if that's the case? Because it's us, folks. It's you and I together, desperately, hopeless, helpless, and in need, weak and frail. And having, as we've said already this morning in this service, no hope anyplace else save in Jesus Christ. It's us, folks. And think about this. Why does the apostle include himself? He knows who he is. He knows who he is. He knows that he is in need every bit as much as those to whom he writes, those to whom he preaches. But he knows also that there is this very real sense in which he is even more needy. It's the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy these words. 1 Timothy 1:12 and following, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Now look, I know that a lot of you believe that this is the only place in the Bible where a mistake was made. The only place where you will find an error in the scriptures. Because you actually believe that you are a greater sinner than was the Apostle Paul. But my dear friends, I've said it myself, I've heard many of you say it. Let me suggest very carefully but very forcefully that we not trifle with the Apostle Paul and that we not trifle with the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the Apostle Paul to write this, to put it in print. And why? So that you might know this, simply this. If the grace of God in Jesus Christ is big enough, if the love of God in Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul is big enough, if the forgiveness given freely to the Apostle Paul, if the grace given for his renovation and his ultimate and final complete restoration, if that grace is big enough for the Apostle Paul, it is big enough for you. It is big enough for you. Don't gut what Paul is saying 
whether in Romans 8 or Ephesians 2 or later in 1 Timothy, of all of its force. This is what he is asserting. If anybody had reason to fear the loss of the love of Jesus Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. And he is saying that nothing can separate us, including me, the chief of sinners, from this love of God in Christ Jesus. It's big enough for you. Now exactly what is he saying? First thing he's saying is it's big enough for you because it's big enough for me. It's big enough for all of us. Well, what's the it to which he's referring? Exactly what is he saying? Here again, something it seems to me that is exceedingly important. Do you notice in verses 35 to 39 how the Apostle Paul creates a parenthesis? And one part of the parenthesis, verse 35, is the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he he goes on to, to identify all of these particular things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. By the way, this is something we'll get into as we get into the Romans 9, 10, and 11 stuff. We talked about it in the Revelation series. We're going to get into it again. We're going to talk about all the things that Paul does say with respect to Israel and the Gentiles. We will also talk about things that Paul doesn't say with respect to the Gentiles and the Jews and the whole scope of the unfolding of redemptive history. One of the things you just got to get if you're going to get the New Testament clearly in focus and in perspective, it is simply this. The church of Jesus Christ is not promised any place in the scriptures that it will be jetted out of here to avoid tribulation. Paul is speaking to first century Christians. Tribulation is a reality for them. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they opposed me, they're going to oppose you. The servant is not above his master. If they killed me, they're going to kill you. Sorry, I didn't say it. When you sign up for discipleship with Jesus, you got to understand the possibility exists that you may die for Jesus. And nobody gets jetted out. Will any of those things separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? He begins with that question. Will anything separate you from the love of Christ? Any of these things. And he cites this Old Testament passage for this reason. He cites the Old Testament passage to say simply this. It happened to them. It can happen to you. It happened to Old Testament believers. Read Hebrews 11. If it happened to them, it can happen to you. He's just proof texting the fact that suffering, even suffering unto death, could be the fate of all or any who follow Jesus Christ. 
But will that separate you from the love of Christ? That's the first part of the parenthesis with all this stuff in the middle of the parenthesis. And what's the other? What's the closing part of the parenthesis? It's verse 39. It is this affirmation that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the significant thing here? He references the love of Christ and he references the love of the Father. And here's why that is important. And I'm guessing that it was important in Paul's day at some level because he does use these two phrases in several different places. The love of the Son, the love of the Father. Why is that important? Here's why. Because I think, even in his day, and I know in our day, and certainly in my own conscience, This aberrant thought creeps into my head. My guess is the devil, the great enemy of my soul, is the author of that thought. And the thought is simply this. You know, the the father is really pretty upset with you. The father is really pretty angry. But thanks be to God, the son snuck out of heaven, made his way to earth, And as we sang in the hymn, interposed his precious blood in order that the Father might not be so angry anymore. See, this subtly can creep into our thinking that the Father's mad, but the Son makes us glad and makes him glad too. Perhaps at some level even against his preferences and inclinations. But Paul makes reference both to the love of the Father and the love of the Son because the love of the Father and the love of the Son is one love and it is indivisible and it is inviolable. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us. There it is again, us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love of the Father for particular sinners. It is the longing and desire and commitment of the Father to rescue and redeem particular sinners that is the soil out of which, the ground out of which, the cross of Jesus Christ grows. Look, I understand we're deep, deep, deep into the mysteries of the Trinity, the relationship of the Father to the Son and the Father and the Son to the Holy Spirit. We're deep into the mysteries of what Christians have affirmed across 20 centuries, that there is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that one God is indivisible. Though we identify these three real persons, and they're not three distinct emanations, it's not one pie that's cut up into three pieces, it is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indivisible, in glory and being and power and in love. The love of the Father is the love of the Son, and the love of the Son is the love of the Father. And that love of the Father and of the Son gets pressed deep into the souls of those whom the Father and Son have loved from all eternity by the person of the Holy Spirit who loves you with the same infinite power, glory, and wonder that is true of the Father and of the Son. 
and indivisible love. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't separate the two. Go back to Ephesians 2, verse 4. After Paul has identified himself with the Ephesian Christians, what does he say? But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Three great words in that passage. They need a sermon. Love, mercy, and grace. Grace is mercy acting. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is God's tenderness toward those who are helpless, those who are destitute, those who are in need. And grace is mercy acting to relieve the distress. And mercy and grace are born out of the love of God. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us. The Father has loved you from all eternity. The Son has loved you from all eternity. The Son didn't sneak out of heaven to come and rescue you from an otherwise adversarial God. Look, is God's holiness real? Is His righteousness real? Is there a day coming? Absolutely. Is sin a problem? Absolutely. Is the threat of condemnation a real threat? Absolutely. But you see, God the Father takes it upon Himself together with the Son to do something about that problem. And they're in it together. Father loves you. Son loves you. Spirit loves you with an indivisible love. Paul is only saying... What Jesus said, he's only echoing what Jesus himself said. John 10, verses 27 through 31. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Father and the Son have you firm in their mutual embrace with their one eternal and unchanging love. That's what Paul is saying here. The love of the Father is the love of the Son, and the love of the Son is the love of the Father. And so what is he after? Here's the third thing. What is he after here? He wants for us what he has come to himself. He wants for you and me, friends, what he has come to himself. In verse 38, he says, I am Persuaded. The ESV has, I am sure. But a better word really is, I am persuaded. Sometimes it's translated convinced. I am sure. I am persuaded. I am convinced. It's the word that Paul uses in Philippians 1.6. I am convinced that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's the same word in in 2 Timothy. I 
I know the one in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Persuaded. You know what's interesting in this passage? I want you to notice this. I want you to notice that there are seven questions in these last nine verses. Seven questions total. There really are five key questions. Question number one, what shall we say to these things? As we've said before, is simply the Apostle Paul encouraging us to stop and reflect and think about everything that he's been saying up to this point. Question number seven, which you find in verse 36, 35, is simply an elaboration. The second question is simply an elaboration of the first question in verse 35. There are five key questions in this passage. Do you notice that the Apostle Paul spends more time answering the last question than he spends answering the first four questions? Why is that? Please hang with me here. Why is that? Here's why. Because you can believe all kinds of things to be true about God and lack this fundamental assurance that you are secure and safe in the love of the Father and the Son. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's really a question that raises the matter of God's omnipotence. If God's power is for me, is there any power that can be against me? Absolutely not. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's all that mystery of election and predestination and the Father having set his affection upon you from before the foundation of the world. It's Excedrin headache number 432. I get that. But you can understand it and you can know it and you can articulate it. Justification. It is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? That's an illusion as Paul follows it up with a reference to the incarnation, the life of obedience, the substitutionary death of Jesus upon the cross, followed by his resurrection and affirmation after his resurrection of his ascension and his current present high priestly reign for you. Folks, you can know these things. You can articulate these things and you can lack the fundamental mental assurance of God's eternal love for you in Jesus Christ. And what Paul wants for you and for me is that we be persuaded in the deepest places of our being of the love of the Father and the love of the Son for you and for me. An inviolable, unalterable, person-specific love. You can know a lot of stuff with your knower. And yet not know this in your heart. Oh, friends. Again, I... This is another sermon. See, a promise made is a promise broken. Let me just say to you that this apprehension 
of this infinite, eternal, and unchanging love is the source of everything in the Christian life. Everything. I could run through six illustrations of conversations I had with people at this past week who were struggling with very particular pastoral issues. And the answer to each one of those issues, whether the ability to forgive somebody, whether the ability to love somebody who's unlovable, whether the ability to see yourself not as the world sees you or as your conscience sees you, that the answer to all of these different issues is this one deep and fundamental thing. You have been loved with an everlasting love and it will not fail you ever. That's the source of everything else in the Christian life, my friends. It's not rules. It's not a resume. It's not a pedigree. It's not socioeconomics. It's not any of that crap. I use that word because Paul uses it in Philippians. He calls it dung. All of it is dung. And rubbish. But this one thing, the precious gospel of Jesus, the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus for me, a particular sinner, is the diamond, the precious gold, the one thing that is the source of everything else in the Christian life. Are you persuaded? You come to this table now, this morning. This table is here so that you might reflect upon these very things, so that you might marvel yet again at this wonderful grace, love, mercy of the Father and the Son.